0: We're in our series entitled Preeminent, as we look at Christ being first place in the midst of our life. And it's a, it's a joy to be able to open this passage with to you today. And as I was getting ready to step up here, uh, today it had a, uh, something that kind of struck me. This is the first time I've preached where I've had two of my groomsmen in the, the congregation uh, at my wedding. And one of them was Joel Bedal. Uh, Joel had a lot more hair then. Um, and uh, Joel was one of those guys. I've known Joel for a long time. How long have you known each other, Joel. Don't say too long. 19 years, something like that, I think so, maybe 20. And then my buddy uh, Adam Johnson, Adam and I grew up together, and uh, uh, I came to Faith in Christ first, and we were, we were best friends, and then he came to Faith in Christ. After that, we continued to be best friends over the years. And I, uh, he came over yesterday, and he brought his four children, and we had my kids, and my son was like, I, I, I don't, hey, he doesn't get to play with little boys for a long period of time, so he was like on a sugar high all day. And he's like right in the kid's face, like doesn't understand personal space. He's like, you're here. Yay. I want to play with you. So he kept asking to make this jumpy thing is what he calls it. And we have these mattresses in our basement. He likes to pile on top of each other and then jump off like it's a diving board. And so I was like, no, you can't do the jumpy thing. And he'd just cry and walk away. And finally, he just got one mattress and didn't create the jumpy thing, but he was still jumping on it. So he, they were taking turns. Uh, the boys were taking turns jumping off of this thing. And I'm talking to Adam, and Adam's uh, back is to the whole situation. And I see at the corner of my eye, Jojo, my uh, 15-month-old son, gets on top of the, the jumpy thing. And he's, like, walking around like an astronaut, you know, on the moon. And he's trying to figure this thing out. And he gets the edge and looks off. And Elijah's frustrated. Because he's not moving fast enough. So my son proceeds to ram him from behind. Now, this little boy, I watch his neck smack back and him face plant into the ground. And he looks up for me like, am I supposed to cry? And and my first reaction is, uh, you know, I, I, I go into daddy mode You ever had that parent mode where you don't even think, you just act? And my first reaction was to grab Elijah, and he knew he was in trouble. (laughs) Just by that, he started, and I pick him up, and I take him upstairs, and I went into the kitchen and grabbed the wooden spoon. And my son associates that with death. Um, and I and I pick up the wooden spoon, and all the kids are looking at him like it was like a death march. Da 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 da. And I'm taking him back to the bedroom, and I sit him down, and he's got tears in his eyes. His face is all red, and he knows what's coming. And I sit him down, and I could tell that he felt really bad what he did to his brother. He knew that because my son not only did he face plant, he nearly missed the, the basement pole. And so I have got double dread in my 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 mind right now. And I sit down and I compose myself. And I'm like, son, you know what you did wrong? Mm-hmm. You could have hurt your brother. Ah. And I, I could tell he's really sorry. So I'm prepared, even though I've got the spoon in the hand, I, I'm prepared to let him off with a major warning rather than to, to give him a, a spanking. And uh, I said, what do you think should be done? And I was prepared. If you said, you know, uh, just let me go, I, I would have said, yeah. And he goes, I deserve a spanking. I'm like, well, since you said so. I'm going to oblige your butt. (laughs) So, uh, and he goes, is it going to (laughs) hurt? I think so. (laughs) So I gave him just three swats, and and then I I held him, and I I loved on him, and he understood, and then he went and played. Now, what bothered me about what my son did is not so much that he, I mean, I was bothered by the fact that he pushed him. And I'd asked him, I said, why did you do that? He goes, because I didn't want him there, (laughs) you know. And basically, he wanted his turn. And and really what it is, at its essence, is selfishness. Right? I mean, we know that. Anybody that's a parent, let me ask you this. Are your kids born selfish? Yeah. Every single one of us would say that our kids are all born selfish. And it's up to help us. I mean, our responsibility as parents is to help train them to not be selfish. Right? So they consider others. Now, we know, even at the core of our being, even as parents, we're pretty selfish people. And we we have to understand that when we are selfish, what we're doing is we're placing ourselves on the throne of our hearts all the time. We want our way. And this world doesn't help fight that, by the way. Our world here in the U.S. caters to it. Our personal preferences, our desires, we can have it our way. We can do whatever we want. It's all about you. Matter of fact, we've taken this so much that you can't tell me what to do. I can exercise whatever right I want or perceive to be my right. And you can't say anything against me in doing my rights. Then you are hindering me and oppressing me. The problem is, is where do you draw the line? I mean, where do you draw the line? I mean, we'd say, well, it's this line, but it's different for each people. And if without the objective standards of God's word, we don't know where that line is. And we know even then, we are great at manipulating things. We want our way, and we're very selfish people. Now, the Bible offers an entirely different way of life. Not a selfish way of life, but a way of life... That is Christ centered. Instead of us being on the throne of our heart, we relinquish that throne and put God on the throne and let Him drive. You know, I I laugh every time I see that bumper sticker that says, God is my co pilot. You ever seen that? If you have that bumper sticker, I am so sorry. Because I'm going to mock you incessantly right now. Because really, God is never our co pilot, He's the pilot. God is the one that needs to be in control and at the wheel of our hearts and our lives. Now, if we're going to live this Christ-centered life, what does that look like? I mean, we all have ideas in our mind, right? If I say Christ-centered life to you, what comes into your mind? Now, some of us might think negative things, or we might think positive things. Some of us have really no idea what to think about. Well, today we're going to look into the Scripture, into this very key and amazing explosive passage to see what God has for us because he's offering us this different way of life that is antithetical to everything that this world has to offer. The world says get some, God says give some. The world says take, Jesus says lay it down. The world says, get power and influence. Jesus says, surrender. And we see that war within us. We continually have to battle to make sure that Jesus is on the throne of our heart. Now today, we're going to look and see what that throne and what his rule or reign looks like in our lives and how we can live the life that God wants us to live because in doing so, we will find the fullest and truest path of joy, peace, and purpose. So before we go any further, let's pause ask for God's blessing on our message time together. Father, we come before you and we open wide our hearts to receive this truth. Lord, help us not to be selfish, but help us to be Christ-centered that we might increase and explode in joy. We thank you and praise you. In Jesus' name, amen. So let's make sure that we are in this passage. Let's start off. He, Paul begins. The, remember, the Apostle Paul is writing to the church of Colossae, which is in modern-day Turkey. It was a city that had uh, had seen better times, kind of a post-industrial city, if you will, that had seen their their greater days of influence behind them, and and there's a, a major Jewish population around them, and these co- converts to Christianity uh, had many of them had converted from Judaism, or even from, uh, or they were Gentiles that converted to Christianity. And these other Jews around the area are saying, you know what? Because Christianity at the time was considered to be a sect of Judaism. They're saying, it's great that you have this faith, but it's incomplete. And they're trying to change and add things to the faith. And Paul is speaking to these enemies and he's trying to show these people how to that are true converts to the faith how to live in a manner that is pleasing to Christ. He begins with the words. Now look at the text with me. In verse 1, I'll be looking at the English Standard Version. He says, If then... You have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Now, he says, you were raised with Christ. Look at those three words, raised with Christ. Now, of course, this is referring to God raising us up with Christ when he rose from the dead. God had united us to him back then. It was God who did it. We didn't. It's in the passive sense. We didn't actively raise ourselves. We didn't say we're going to save ourselves. We have been raised. God did it. He is the, the active agent in this. He raised us, put us with Christ. And when, Jesus raised, when God raised Jesus up from the dead, he raised us as well. We were in Christ even then. It's not just that God foreknew it. He ordained it, decreed it, that we would be participants in the death and resurrection of Christ. And he says, if that is the case, then we are to seek the things that are above. Now the word seek, is in the imperative mood. It means to seek, to pursue. It's a command. And what God is telling us here is that if we are to be true Christ followers... Then we have a new life's pursuit, a new life pursuit. Write that down. New life pursuit. If you are a follower of Jesus, you claim the name of Jesus, you say that you are a Christian, then your life should look differently than it was before. To say that you can follow Jesus and hold on to your sin is a misnomer, it is completely impossible. It's like trying to stay on the ground and on a plane at the same time as it's ascending into the sky. You can't do it. Either you've got to pick the ground or the sky. You can't have both. So it is to be our new life's pursuit. He says, seek the things that are above. It's a command. I want you to do this. If then you have been raised with Christ, you have to have a new life pursuit. Now notice, these are a few things I want us to notice. First of all, this pursuit is conditional. It starts off that little word if, if. That's an amazing little word. It's a powerful word. If. If. We use it all the time. He says, if you have been raised with Christ, then seek the things that are above. If you've not been raised with Christ, you can't seek those things of God. See, many times that we in the church try to do is get people cleaned up before they come in the church. We want to get them to have different behavior and, fo- and follow the rules before they have the relationship. And that's not what the Scripture says. He says, if then, you have to be raised to have this type of life that God wants you to have. This is a conditional word. He's saying that you have to have faith in Christ first. Now, I remember hearing of one megachurch pastor who said that if we found the body of Jesus, then it wouldn't affect his faith one bit. And I would say that it would have to affect mine because if Christ is not raised, that's why he says, if, "If Christ has been raised, you are to seek." Now one pastor, when he said this, he goes, "If they found the body of Jesus today, they were to you know, they would uncover it someplace, some archaeologist would find it, and it says, "Here lies the, the bones of Jesus Christ." He said it wouldn't affect my faith one bit. I'd have to disagree with him. Matter of fact, I think the Apostle Paul would disagree. Uh, stringently, as you'd look, in, and, and, and I invite you to turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And if you've got a, a pew Bible, then I've got a number for you. That is number 961. 961 in your pew Bible. On uh, the large print, it's 1222. So in 961, the Apostle Paul is laying forth this, and he's talking about the resurrection of Christ from the dead, which Martin Luther, by the way, described as the linchpin on which the door of Christianity swings. Without the resurrection, we've got nothing. And Paul agrees. Paul says this, He says, "And if Christ has not not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testify about God that He raised Christ, whom He did not raise. If it is true that the dead are not raised, for if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, futile, and you are still in your sins. Then those who have also fallen asleep in Christ have perished." And this is the verse that really is key here. He says in verse 19 of 1 Corinthians 15, If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. We deserve pity. If we're saying that He's been raised and it really didn't happen, then we're idiots. We deserve people's pity. But he's saying here that Christ has been raised. The resurrection means everything. That changes Our life pursuit that changes everything. Now we see that this pursuit is conditional. You can't have this life if you do not have Christ. And it's only available to those who have placed their faith in Christ alone for salvation. It's not some kind of moralism, behavior, or philosophy, it's not just being good. Now, I don't know how many people that I talk to about Christ, they think it's just about being good and following the rules. matter of fact, this past week, uh, we were helping uh, this one woman who was in need. Not the woman that I spoke to earlier, about earlier, another woman helping her in the midst of a family situation. And I said, you know, we're helping you, but I'm hoping that this helps turn you to Christ. And she's like, well, I'm, I'm good with Jesus. And I was like, really? Or you are? She's like, yeah, I, I, I'm pretty good. Well, why do you say that? She goes, well, I haven't sinned, and uh, you know, I've been abstaining from these sins that have been the hallmark of my life for six months. I'm like, well, that's great, but that's not Jesus. It's much more than yet. Yes, yes we're, I'm applauding you for doing that, but it's not just not sinning. That's not what it means to follow Jesus. It's not just about not sinning against God. And the woman looked at me with this dumbfounded look like, what are you talking about? I said it's about finding your life, your purpose, your pursuit, your joy, your peace, everything in him. Everything about your life, the meaning is in him. And it's joy that you're pursuing, not just not sinning. And she's like, you're going to have to explain what you mean by that. Because I don't understand what you're talking about. See, for her, the rela- it wasn't about a relationship with God. It was about God being a police officer, and he would leave her alone if she just quit doing bad things. And many think that we can appease God that way. That's not what the scripture is saying here. It's not just, I mean, yes, we're not to continue in sin, but that's not just it. We can't just change our behavior and think everything's great with God. It means trusting in Christ alone and letting him change us from the inside out, not just regulating the behavior and seeking transformation from the outside in, but it's inside out. We're to delight ourselves in the Lord and he will give us the desires of the heart and understand that the joy of the Lord is our Strength. So it is this pursuit we can see then as conditional, but it's also commanded. It's commanded. Seek is, in the, in an, is an imperative. Why does God command us to seek Him? You ever wondered that? Why does God say that? God says, Seek me, praise me, love me. Why? Is it because He just wants to make us obey? I mean, when I tell my kids to do this and do that, and they go, Why? You ever had your kids do that to you? Anybody have kids that does that? I said, Do this. Why? Because I said so. Why? Because I will kill you if you don't. No, I don't say that. And then I go and they're like, "Why?" Cuz God said so. Why? I don't know, ask him. I mean, my kids ask me questions all the time. Why is the sky blue? And normally I'll go, "Go ask Chad Thompson. Go ask Mr. Thompson, and he'll tell you." And then, "Why?" Well, God did it. That's my answer for everything. <laughs> I don't understand all the means all the time. But here we see in this uh, situation, God commands us. Why does he do that? Because God wants us to give wants to give us himself. Because it's in when we worship him, when we're seeking him, when we're delighting in him, he's showing himself to us. Because God communicates his presence to us when we are seeking and worshiping him. So when he says, delight yourself, he's saying, I want you to find your joy in me. I want to find your purpose in me. I want to find your, your passion and your delight in me. It's not just some moralism and behavior. It's a life-changing relationship that results in overflowing joy. I mean, we need to be more excited about Jesus. Some of us walk around like, I'm a Christian. It's like we're at an AA meeting. I'm a follower of Jesus. It's been eight years since I've been following him. We treat it like that. And that's not how our, our, our life is supposed to be. It's, I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. And that's where I find my joy, my passion, my heartbeat, my meaning of my life. We don't understand that. We need to understand that it's about joy and it being satisfied in him. Finding our satisfaction in him. Matter of fact, turn with me to John chapter 4. John chapter 4. Uh, it's in the New Testament. If you're not familiar with it, I'll try to shout out some page numbers. But Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, if you're not that familiar uh, with your Bible, if you just have a New Testament, it's the fourth book in. And in John chapter four, page eight eighty nine, Jesus is speaking and says, "Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again." It's a, it's a, it's a, a figurative understanding. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. It's the idea is, is that you're going to be satisfied. You ever been really thirsty? Ever felt that where your tongue is dried up and feels like sandpaper and you're like, I just need a drink of water. And you you just need to drink more and more. We know that's not going to satisfy forever. Here he's saying, the drink that I will give will satisfy forever. We're all looking for satisfaction. But in the words, for many of us, the words of Mick Jagger are very true. I can't get no satisfaction. Because we can't find it anywhere else except in Christ and Christ alone. Not in moralism. See many people think of Christ and they're like well I'm not satisfied because you're not you're leaving, living a moralistic life not a Christ-centered life big difference big big difference so we are it is a command now notice here this next phrase In verse 1, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Now, don't just overlook that. That's a very important theological truth that is being illustrated right in front of us. See, the author, uh, what he's saying there is that he is seated. That's very important that he's seated. He's not standing. He's seated. Now, what does that mean? In order for us to grasp the full meaning of what Paul says, we need to turn to the book of Hebrews chapter 10. So turn with me to the book of Hebrews chapter, chapter 10. There are 13 chapters in Hebrews. It's the latter part of your New Testament, Um, Hebrews, James, uh, but you're looking for Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 11 through 13, page 1006. And um, the author of Hebrews is explaining basically how Christ fulfills much of the Old Testament. And he says this And every priest stands daily, he's talking about Jewish priests that were serving in the Jewish temple in the Old Testament, at his service. Offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins, not completely or entirely, temporarily. That's why they do it day after day. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. He's saying then that redemption has been accomplished. He's talking about uh, showing us how Christ fulfilled their, uh, the three of the offices, actually, of the Old Testament. There was prophet. We know that he was the prophet that Moses had foretold about who would come um, and speak to man face to face. He would lead the people. He was a prophet. He's also a king in the line and house of David, a descendant of Judah that would have an everlasting dominion. But he's also our high priest meaning that he's fulfilling, and only Christ alone can fulfill these biblical offices that were placed or within the Old Testament and are embedded there to pour and point to the coming of Jesus. And what it means there is that we, in everything that we do, this pursuit that we have, though it's conditional, though it is commanded, it's based on the completed work of Christ. See, when Christ sat down, he was done. He was done. It is Finished. See, this is the difference. And you'll see some people wearing jewelry where they have Jesus on the the cross still, and Jesus is hanging there. And and the idea is carried over from uh, some aspects of Catholicism that Christ is never done paying the price for sin, that he's continually doing it. And every time that the Mass is done, he is doing it again and again and again and again. No, it's not that he's in some perpetual torture chamber. The idea is, is his death was sufficient for all time. It was done. He said, it is finished. Your sins, past, present, and future, have been paid for. You don't have to worry about them anymore. They're taken care of. And this pursuit that we are to have is based on the completed work of Christ. It is finished. It is finished. It is based on the completed work of Christ. That's how great it was. It doesn't need to be repeated again. It was the greatest of all time." All time. You know, like I said, I'm a sports fan, and we're always looking for the the next, they call the GOAT. The greatest player of all time. And people, I mean, like with me, I'm telling my kids about players that I saw, and you're comparing generations and different players, and who's going to be the next great one? There's none greater. That was the GOAT. He was the greatest of all time. No one will ever be better. No one will ever do better. No one ever could And no one ever ever will because of what he did was the greatest of all time. None greater. So it is the completed work of Christ. And this pursuit that we are to have is not based on our merit. You can't earn God's salvation. You will never be good enough. You will never be righteous enough. You must trust in what he has already done. Remember what we talked about a few weeks ago? Religion says, I obey, therefore I am accepted. Relationship says, I am accepted, therefore I obey. That's a, it's the living hope that we have, a new life that we have, and it's all based on Christ and what He has done. It is finished. Now let's get back to our text. Look at verse 2 with me. Set your minds on things that are above. Now here, set is a present imperative active. It's something that we are to do presently and it is a command. It comes from the root word phroneo and generally means to have understanding, to think. Nevertheless, it's much more than that. It's referring to thinking deeply and proper regulating from within. See, what he's saying there is that if we are to live Christ-centered lives, that it requires for us to have a new thought process. What was it? It's Mac that says, think different, right? I mean, right? It's think different, right? Because we are to think different. As Christians, we are to think different. You know why we do that? It's because if we can change the mind, and if we let God get a hold of our mind and our heart, that changes our behavior. It's transformed from the inside out. And that's why he says, set your mind. And it's not just always referring to the mind. It's thinking deeply, meditating. It's not just uh, our our intellectual ability. It's all of who we are. All of who we are offered up to God. It's not just regulating behavior. I was talking to my uh, Shia Muslim friend. The other day, uh, actually a couple months ago, we were talking out over coffee. And he asked, me, he asked me really interesting questions sometimes. He goes, how do you get your wife to obey? I'm like, first of all, that's not a good question to ask. <laughs> Let's change the question, first of all. Um, but he really wanted to know. And he says, what does the Bible say? He said, I've been looking through the scriptures for different things, and I'm frustrated because it doesn't give specifics. And I said, what do you mean? He says, well, the Quran says that I am, if I want to get my wife to obey, first of all, I, would, I, I don't speak to her. I'm like first, And I said, my response to that was, m- most men are going to have a problem not talking that I know. So I don't think that's going to be a big issue. He goes, secondly, you withhold intimacy from your wife. I said, f- secondly, that's impossible for most men that I know. Um, that's not going to happen. And he said, well, the third step is if that doesn't work, you strike her. And I went, hold the phone. I said, you can strike her, but you won't have her heart. And I said, the scripture always goes to the heart. The Bible is not about just the conformity to outward behavior, it's about inner transformation. And so the Quran, though regulating and forcing through, for, you know, through physical intimidation, said so the scripture is always about loving and sacrificing and surrendering. I said, what you can do, she might obey. But what my Bible says is that you're to get her heart changed from the inside out. See, we need to make sure that we need to change our thought process. We need to think God's thoughts. We need to let that truth get a hold of us and transform us from the inside out. Not just trying to get people to conform to our manner of thinking or outward behavior. Now, he says here that we're to think on things above. Perhaps we can learn what the things above are. I mean, uh, we could think of the things of earth. What, is the th- what are the things of earth? What does that mean to think of things above? Does that mean I'm just thinking of angels and people floating on clouds wearing giant diapers? What is that? You know, I, I think of doves, and then I hear prints in my head where the doves cry, something like that. All these weird songs go off in my head, and I'm like, man, that doesn't seem like heaven. What does it mean to think things that are above? Well, what's the opposite? Let's think of the things of earth. I want you to turn with me to Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3, verse 17 through 21. And that's on page 981 in your pew Bible, if you have it. So we're in Philippians chapter 3. And Paul is writing. He says, Brothers, 317, Join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you now and tell you even with tears, it bothers him so much that he's crying, It hurts him so much, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. And this is the key verse right in here. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject things to himself. Now notice, what is their God? What is it? What does it say? Their belly, their belly. It's talking about their appetite, not their little stomach. but it's about their, their spiritual appetites that they are uh, not spiritual appetites, but they're just living for physical gratification. And I, I, I had this vividly reminded to me. My daughter and I took my daughter to uh, the Bulls game on Friday night to watch the Timberwolves play. And we're, we're sitting there. It was their first game. And I was nervous of what the experience was going to be like. Because at any sporting event, you always have some moron who's just really, you know, drinking and their mouth starts running. And so... Uh, had a, unfortunately, I had a whole row of that right in front of me. And they're just dropping, you know, languages. I'm like, oh, you know. My daughter's like, I can't believe that. I'm like, well, not everybody's a Christian. Okay. So it's a good lesson. Uh, they need Jesus. Um, but I'm hearing one of them, and uh, they call out to this other guy several rows down, and he recognizes and comes up, and he starts talking about life. And they're like, what have you been up to? He's like, what else is there? Uh, he just says, drinking, eating, and making love. And He was serious. Totally serious. He's just joking about it. And I'm like, you know, basically he just captured the essence of what most people just live for. That's it. And that's what even Paul's saying. Their God is their belly. It's their appetite. They won't restrain themselves. They won't try to follow and do what God wants them to do. They're just holding on to their sin. Sad. Life is much more than that. Of course we're to enjoy God's creation. We cannot make the creation an idol unto itself. See, we've gone from worshiping the Creator to the creation. We become idolaters. The creation is meant to point us to the Creator. See, God wants us to think differently, and this thought process is to be holistic. Holistic. Now, when we think of things above, people think, well, I can't think of earthly things now. But earthly things, are, it's the idea of that's all I'm thinking about. Now, are we to think about our, our careers and our jobs? Are we to think about our marriages and our relationship and our children? Yes, we totally are. Matter of fact, why would we, why would we neglect that? And some people have taken this passage to, th- to think it's okay to neglect my married life um, because I'm following Jesus. And they take Jesus' words that says, Anyone who is loves wife more than me is not worthy of me. And they take that in a totally wrong direction. And they think, Here, I'm just to think about spiritual things. I'm not to think about earthly things. Well, that's dumb. Look at the, just the, later down in the passage, look at it. In Colossians chapter 3, just down to the verse 18. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting to the Lord. Husbands, love your wives. He's talking about the, the, the family relationship that we're to have. So this, this thinking that we're to have is the understanding of what God values. Now, what does God value and love? He loves us to give ourselves sacrificially. He loves us to live lives of holiness. He wants us to do our jobs well. Did you realize that? God wants you to do your job well. Do you know that's part of the creative order, that one of the things that God told Adam to do, I mean, Adam was to have dominion and authority over everything, and when God brought him the animals, he named them, right? And it's exercising that God-given dominion, that he is, he is then dispensing and fulfilling uh, the creative mandate or the, of dominion over that order to name your environment, that's what you're to do. And if you're to do your job well and you know your job well and know all these aspects of your job, you're to do it for the glory of God and you're doing it in such a way that God receives glory. That is thinking things that are above. That's part of it. Not all of it, but it's part of it. The same with your parenting. To know your children. To know how to love them. To know how to encourage them. How to be satisfied as a single. If God has you as a single. If God has you as a single, then you can delight yourself. You don't have to be married, by the way. Paul, Paul, Paul says, "You can be as single as I am, because he could dedicate himself to God completely. We have this tendency to criminalize singles, like, what's wrong with you?" We were sharing this as our staff and some of our staff are single, and they said, "I've gone to Bible studies where people literally stopped in the middle of the study and said, "What's wrong with you? Why are you still single?" Some, it's by choice. Some are waiting. They want spouses, but they don't want to make the wrong decisions. And I applaud them for waiting, for placing their trust in Christ. If you are single, and you want to be married, continue to, to follow the Lord with all of your heart. Run after Jesus, and the, find the person that's running with you, marry her or him. But find your delight in the Lord. Let's not criminalize singleness. But let's, let's continue to point people to Jesus as these people can devote themselves uh, to the Lord, I remember uh, anybody remember Mark Lowry? He 's a Christian comedian. Uh, I remember years ago. he said i'm 33 years old, I 'm single. He said, uh, "I always thought I 'd be married by the age of 33." Why? Because that 's the time when the Lord laid down his life." Um, he said that. he goes, "Don't forget, you pray to a 33year-old married single, I mean, single man. Just remember that. He played so I thought that was funny. That was extra. All right. let 's get back to the text. We're to think holistic thoughts. We're also to think heavenly thoughts, thoughts that are above. Heavenly thoughts. Now, what does that mean? Paul lays this out in Philippians chapter 4, verse 8. I want, you to, I want you to look this passage up. It's page 982, and I want you to underline it. And then, some of you need to do this. You need to take this passage, you need to cut and paste it, you need to print it, and then you need to tape it over the top of your laptop or your television. Okay? And what what does Paul say here? He says, Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. You should not be seeing someone take off their clothes on your television or your computer. Those are not pure and honorable. Those aren't heavenly thoughts. We need to make sure that we're doing heavenly and thinking heavenly thoughts. These are the things that are above, things that are true, honorable, things that are just, upright, pure, lovely, worthy of being repeated. Now, I'm not saying that you can't enjoy an athletic event. I'm not saying that. Because you can find when it's done excellently and it's done well, that can also point to the glory of God. All of those things can. Make sure our thoughts are heavenly. Now, this thought process is also to be habitual. It's a present active. Present active imperative mean, it's, it's to be done again and again and again all the time. It's habitual. When he says, set your mind, and we need to do it over and over. We have to fight for joy. We have to fight to seek God. We have to fight to set our minds on things that are above. It just doesn't happen when we wake up in the morning. It doesn't, because when you wake up in the morning, you're going to be greeted by a million things. I mean, I'm amazed. My wife makes so many decisions before seven a.m. I that I. That, I mean, I just heard a comedian say that last night. He said, "My uh, he goes," I, and he's a Christian comedian. He says, "My or maybe it's not him." He said, uh, "My wife makes more decisions before seven a.m. than I make in my whole day." That's true. And I think of my wife. I mean, she's not even cognate yet. Um, because it's not, she's not a morning person. I love my wife, but she's not a morning person. So please don't call before 7, uh, to my wife, ever. Matter of fact, may not call before 10. Just kidding. Just kidding. Have our minds uh, there to be holistic, heavenly, and our thoughts are to be habitual. We're to continually set our mind on things of Christ. Now look at verse 3. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears then you will also appear with him in glory. See, Christ-centered living gives us a new perspective on the end of life. Here he's talking about you have died. Died. Now, I want you to think for a second. I want you to, what's your funeral going to be like? Who's going to be there? What are they going to say about you? He says here, you've died. I mean, it really gives you a new perspective on life. When you're faced with death, it's amazing how people's perspective shifts. Really it is. I see that all the time. Your your perspective changes. You know, you think, "Oh, there's so much more I wanted to do," but when you're confronted with it, now you want to do it. Why were you delaying in the first place? Christ-centered living gives us a new perspective on the end of this life. It's like uh, Chris Conte. You anybody know, know Chris Conte? He was the, uh, I you know he was uh, the safety for the Chicago Bears. I actually thought he was a Matador because he let everybody run to the end zone all the time. Um, and he got two concussions in the same season, right, this past season, and they interviewed him, and they said, you know, now they're finding that concussions can cause a lot of problems in life later on, and you can actually sacrifice 10 to 15 years of your life because of these concussions and head injuries, and he said, I would gladly sacrifice 10 to 15 years of my life to have played just a couple of seasons in the NFL. It's worth it. Now, This one commentator, he said, that is the difference between a thirty-eight year old man and a twenty five year old man. Because when he gets out of football, he's gonna see how fleeting football really is. And he's gonna find out that he's gonna want more of life. See, it changes it. Changes it as you get nearer to the end zone of life. See, this this life this life is short, but this passage, and through this passage, we realize that death that we're talking about is our own. This perspective on the end of our life is the result of a funeral. The result of a funeral. Funerals have a way of opening people up to different things and really focusing and honing us in. And I think of uh, the story of Christmas Carol with Charles Dickens. Remember that story? And he's visited with the angels of the ghost of Christmas past, the ghost of Christmas present, the ghost of Christmas future. And he's talking with the ghost of Christmas future, and there, and, and the ghost doesn't talk back, remember? And he takes him to the cemetery, and he wants to know whose who's that is, and he reveals the tombstone, and it's his own. And that sobers you up real quick and showed him what was important. And he saw that he wasn't remembered to be a good man. He had not a good reputation, that he'd been selfish, that he'd been miserly. See, the funeral that we're, we're having to take a look at, our own death, I mean, that has a way, if we stare at our own death, our own funeral, our own tombstone, that changes our perspective. We all know that we're going to die. Matter of fact, the Scripture says that we've already died. Did you know that? Turn with me to Galatians chapter 2. Galatians chapter 2, page 973. The Apostle Paul is writing. This is a very well-known verse. I would encourage you to memorize this verse. Uh, But Galatians 2.20 is just a hallmark verse. And the Apostle Paul is writing and he says, I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. See, he's saying here, I was crucified with Christ. I died with him. It was my funeral. The funeral is ours. When Paul says, you have died, your life is hidden with Christ and God. He illuminates on this in Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6. So turn there with me. It's on page 942. But you can listen in if you don't get there quick enough. Uh, Romans 6, 1-11, Paul says, What shall we say then? Are we continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? I died. I had a funeral. I can't continue to do that anymore. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into His death? We died with Him. We were buried, therefore, with Him. I, his funeral was my funeral. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once and for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God, so that you must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. In other words, Christ died our death, and his death served to sever the chains of sin on our souls. See, I've heard people over the years give excuses why they don't want to follow Jesus, and it all comes back to the same thing, that they don't they love their sin too much. I was talking with a, a, a friend of ours who has uh, really turned away and spurned the faith um, of, of Christ. And she was angry because we were talking about people um, in alternative lifestyles. are engaging in homosexuality and and, and and can be anything. It could be pornography. It could be uh, people that are fornicating. People are, are committing adultery. Put them all together in this category. And she basically says, that's how they are. That's how they'll always be. And my quote in re- response to her is that this, you know not the scriptures nor the power of God. Because every one of us was lost in our sin, not just that one, and every one of us loved our sin, and every one of us, the sin is natural to us, and every one of those required the crucifixion of Christ to set us free from our sin. Every single one of us, without exception, whether you were a thief, whether you were a drunk, whether you were a drug addict, It doesn't matter. You could be a gossip. You could be a slanderer. You could be whatever behavior you want to put in there. All of them are abhorrent in the sight of God. And all of them required his death to set us free. And we have new life. We've been delivered. Now we have to learn how to die daily to that flesh which means we take up our cross and deny those desires which seem natural to us, which are actually abhorrent in the sight of God. But every one of us has that dent of disobedience that we have to learn how to fight against because we need to understand that we died to sin and appropriate his death as our own and his resurrection of our own. Now notice in the pa- this passage, it says in uh, Colossians, we see here that it's our, you died and your life is hidden with Christ and God. Meaning that it's lived by faith. It's lived by faith. Even Paul said that in Galatians chapter 2. I've been crucified with Christ. We just read this. And it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me and a life I now live in this flesh. I live by faith. It comes back to faith. When he's saying it's hidden, it can't be seen by everybody else. It's something that takes place by faith. Faith. We live and we walk by faith. It's our divine Wi-Fi signal that keeps us connected to God. Faith is the confident belief expressed in action that assures us of what is real and what will come to pass. It's by faith. Now, where does this lead? Look at verse 4. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with Him in glory. See, it's referring to a time when Jesus comes again. And how we will be with him. See, Paul is not going through all of the details in reference to the end of time. He is simply saying that we will be with Jesus in glory, which is Paul's way of saying that this Christ centered life results in a fabulous future. Future. Now, I mentioned before, we have a very incorrect view of heaven. Matter of fact, As I've been talking with my mom, she's like, I'm not ready to go. And I understand that. She wants to hold on to the memories and the things that are here. But I I look at it, and I'm like, I don't think you would have a hard time holding on if you knew what was coming. I had this uh, friend, pastor friend of mine, whose brother was diagnosed with terminal brain cancer. And he stands up in front of his church, and he says, I'm jealous of my brother. And people came up to him afterwards. They're like, Pastor, are you okay? Do you have a death wish? He's like, I don't have a death wish. He just gets to see Jesus 1st I'm jealous. He really was. He said I meant that. See, so it reminds me of my kids, and I'm going to conclude this with this thought. My kids, uh, we were getting ready. I told the kids, we came home, and I said, Honey, I said, Kids, we, we got a new house. And instead of jumping up and down, they're like, Oh, so we're moving, kids. And they're like, um, I don't. Elijah comes up to me, and he goes, I don't want to move. I was like, Why? He goes, I like it here. As I stare out at his, his minefield of toys and Legos, that should be a four-letter word when you step on them as a parent in the middle of the night. There's different kinds of pain. Lego pain should have its own label. And I thought of my son, and, and he didn't want to go. It's every, it, this home is the only one he ever knew. My daughter said the same thing. She saw the other house. She goes, I don't like this house. I don't want to leave our house. I said, okay, but we're moving. So we take up all the things. I mean, they're, they're thinking this is the only house they've really ever known. And all of the memories that are associated with it, the family's there. Everything that they've formulated is there. And, and then we, we box everything up. Then we move to the new house. And I give him some time. And I, I, I'm, I'm sledding with uh, Elijah yesterday over Lincoln Park. We're sledding together. And I said, hey, do you, do you miss the old house? He goes, no. I was like, why? This house is better. Why? It's bigger. And I can run around and do all this stuff. And, and I, you know, in some ways that's a perspective of heaven. Many of us are fearful of leaving this world. We're holding on to the things that are here. But see, that th- this house is leaky. It's inefficient. There's not a lot of space. But see, if we knew what was coming, we'd get excited. It's a graduation ceremony. For many of us, we think it's an execution. But it's not. It's a promotion this world is not all there is. We get to be with Jesus, who is the very definition of heaven itself. Every joy, every pleasure, every hope. I mean, just as uh, I knew Adam, uh, this, his birthday was just this week. Uh, now he's old. And um, uh, his wife pulled a, a prank on him that she was taking him to see us as a present. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Happy birthday. <laughs> um, and uh, when I saw him, my, my, I, I was, my heart was growing in anticipation because he's a good friend. I love him. And I think of the excitement as I know he's getting closer and closer. I want to see him. You know? And I think of Jesus, that's infinitely bigger. The heart, the excitement. He's coming. He's coming. That makes me excited. I get to see him. Hey! Jesus! It's the excitement of heaven. We get to peer with Him in glory. No more sorrow. No more tears. No more pain. No more problems. No more frustrations. Everlasting joy at His right hand. Our pleasures forevermore. Death is gone. It is no more. That we have Christ and get to be with Him forever and ever and ever and amen and amen. And every passion of our heart, every celebration and party that this world we have is so it's much smaller than what we have in Him. And the glory and the peace and the joy and the fulfillment and the pleasure and the satisfaction will all be realized in Him. That's the hope that we have. And we need to, knowing that he will appear, that it is coming to an end, changes us in the here and now. It makes us want to live for him, to long for him, to direct our life to him, to change everything for him, because he's coming again. That needs to cause us to be celebrating. Shout to God to make a joyful noise, all the earth. So we need to celebrate that fact. We need to be joyous. We need to find that joy and hope and pleasure in the glory of God. And you know what? That salvation is available to all who come to Him in repentance and faith. It doesn't matter where you have been or what you have done, that God saved you. And He offers that opportunity to save you by believing in Him and placing your faith and trust in Him and what He has done, and He will transform you. that means repenting of your sin, embracing and believing on Him, and expressing that faith, and showing the reality of that relationship with Him. And it's available to all who call on the name of the Lord. What's keeping you from doing that? What's keeping you from it? Don't hold on. Don't don't try to, to delay it. Do it today. For His glory and your joy. Let's pray. Father, we come into your presence and we are grateful that you gave your son to die for us. Lord, may we marvel evermore, all of the glories of what you have done and what you are doing. May we praise your name. May we see you in all of your brilliance as we continually to go through the word of God, just as we would take a diamond and shine it in the light and see all the glimmer and all the facets of beauty. May we continually see that within your word, the glory of who you are and what you have done and what you want to do in and through us as we forsake self-centered lives and we embrace the cross-centered life because we know that in that place is fullness of joy. That is the road and pathway of truth. And that all came because of what your son has done for us. We thank you and we pray that we might have that peace that transcends all understanding, that we might truly understand how to find our joy in you, that we might forsake sin, that we might seek the things that are above, that we might hold on and value those things that are pure and noble and honorable and just, that we might not embrace the sinful nature, but we might live lives that are glorifying in your sight, and then we might grow in joy until that day where our joy will be made complete. We thank you and we praise you of all that you're going to do and all that you're doing right now in the hearts of men and women in this place. We ask you to continue to do so. Let them not rest till they surrender and trust in you. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.